0: The following Downstage Center program was originally broadcast in July 2008.
1: Welcome to Downstage Center, presentation of XM, Satellite Radio, and the American Theatre Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway.
0: And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing.
1: Today we welcome Randy Graff. Hi, Randy. Hi. Looking at your bio, your credits, over the past 20 years or so, some wonderful shows, including now, the revival of Damn Yankees, which is a very limited run at City Center, part Mm -hmm. of their Encore series. But going way back... Fontaine in La Mis, mm-hmm. in City of Angels. He won the Tony Award for that, the, the two different roles, the, uh, the the present and the, the film version of, of the characters, The Secretary, Laughter on the 23rd Floor, Moon Over Buffalo, High Society, A Class Act, and most recently on Broadway, Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. Well, Damn Yankees. Now, that's a show that many people have not seen because it was originally on Broadway in 1955, but now it's been lovingly restored by Encores at City Center for three weeks, and it closes in just a couple of days.
2: July 27th.
1: Yeah. Right. So um, let's talk a little bit about about you and about your character of Meg Boyd. She is kind of the, the one that holds Joe Boyd and the whole storyline together. She's the wife of the guy who becomes the baseball player.
2: She's the wife of the guy who makes the pact with the devil. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm, you know... I'm really loving her. The the more I play her, the more I get to know her, the more fun I'm having with her. Um, and when I first read it, she didn't really leap out at me on the page. And people would say, Oh, you're playing Meg. Hmm. Oh, she's just home waiting for her husband. And I thought... A little red flag went up for me. And I thought, I can't... I don't want to play this woman like a victim. And... um Many years ago, Jerry Zachs taught me an invaluable, invaluable lesson. He said to always make the positive choice when acting, which I find always makes things more interesting. And I've decided that she's not a victim. I've decided that during this time, during this journey where, where her husband's left her, she's learning a little something about herself and her marriage as well, and is hopeful and strong in her love for him and their marriage and believes that he's coming back and i had a little which i think is a positive choice and and i had a little help with that choice because the book the year the yankees won the pennant the letter that joe leaves for meg goes into more detail. It's not just the song that says, I love you and keep the faith baby, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. I'm coming back. The letter, it's so interesting because most people don't realize he really goes into detail about, this is not about another woman. I love you. You're the er, only girl for me. I'm coming back. We'll probably be rich when I come back. And please, and it even says, please remember to make the payments on the house (laughs) and, and please tell everyone at work that I'm taking care of a, my, a sick relative in Minneapolis. So I think she's left with great strength and great faith about his love. And that's what I decided to connect to. Now, there are moments in the play where she's crying on the sofa or crying in front of the TV, and I just sort of decided for myself that 99% of the time she believes that he's coming back. And that 1% of the time, when I'm on stage crying, (laughs) that's the time where I might lose faith a little bit. But ultimately, I believe that he's coming home.
1: Well, just to put the story in perspective, Joe Boyd, the husband, is a diehard... He's Washington a Senators a Washington fan. Washington Senators yeah, fan. Who makes a deal with the devil to become yeah. Joe Hardy, the young baseball player, right. who's the slugger who basically saves the team. To help and, the, and help him he win the pennant, he yeah. he decides to leave his wife home for a few months when yeah. he goes off and plays <laughs> baseball, yeah. essentially.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think the modern woman, you know, the, the 2008 woman will look at it and... Um, think, what is she, crazy? He he leaves for a month. She has no idea where he is. He comes back. She takes him back. But, you know, there are a lot of Meg Boyds out there. This isn't just a, a housewife from 1955. There are a lot of other, there are a lot of housewives out there who think that way. And without any judgment, I'm just playing it, you know. But he does come back um, after about a month and says to her, you know, she says, where you been? And he says, don't ask, don't ever ask. And Meg says, "I won't." But here's the thing that I learned because of the way um, the way we've staged the duet in the second act, which is called "Near to You" between Meg and Young Joe. It's much more sensual than it's usually played. And Cheyenne and I get quite close. Cheyenne Jackson. Cheyenne Jackson. There are, there are sparks. There are real sparks, and um, and. It's quite moving. Um, so if Joe tell if older Joe tells me where he's been, then I kind of have to tell him about the thing that I had in the park with the guy, <laughs> <laughs> and he can choose whether or not to tell me it was him. You know, mm-hmm. so it's not okay. I'll never ask, and um, you, I'll, you know, y- you never have to tell me. It's not. It's 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 more about. Um, it's not necessary
1: well it's also trust and love trust and love
2: trust and love that um, they're back together they're stronger than ever they learn to appreciate each other even more and I think it's actually independent thinking on her part um, to have that kind of an attitude I don't know if I could do that personally (laughs) I don't know I'd want to know where you've been (laughs) you know I don't know if I could say okay I won't ask I don't know so I I think she's quite strong In that moment.
0: Listening to you talk about this, I'm very curious. You spoke about you went back and looked at the book and you were making some choices. How much of this was generated by the director of the show saying, let's take a, a whole fresh look at Damn Yankees? And how much of this was what you, Randy Graff, brought into the room and said, I'd like to do this? Or did you even tell people what you were doing?
2: Well, John Rando, the director, is is very collaborative. So whatever we, um, most of it, we discovered together, and particularly the Act II uh, duet, we sort of discovered together. And at one point, John said, I want you to get even closer, get right up to him, get in his face. And I went, really? This is really bold. And he said, yes, I don't know how else to play it. I think this is the only way to play it. So, um he was pretty much in charge and really mm-hmm. making that moment that that bold. But I, I think in um I think I had certain ideas about her. I'm and um you know
0: it, it it was a real it was a real collaboration, I think. I also read that when this first came up your reaction was that maybe you were being thought of for one of the other characters. Name yeah, well, you know,
2: I always uh, I thought I'd be asked to play Gloria because I'm always kind of cast as the wisecracker, you know, the broad with the wisecracks. No, no wisecracks <laughs> <laughs> for me. No, I mean, you, you I like become the emotional part, heart of the show. Yes, and I love I'm, and I'm I actually prefer to be playing her. I, I think her journey is really kind of interesting. Yeah, huh. so I'm very happy that they offered me Meg. Really. Very happy about that.
1: It's, it's a short run, three week run. You only had a short rehearsal period too, yeah. more than the regular run you've been in other encores where you get like ten days. This is like a, mm-hmm. a blessing, kind of three weeks. Of, of it rehearsal. is a blessing. Yeah.
2: yeah, it was three weeks.
1: So, how did the show evolve over those three weeks as people became familiar with it? you? Became familiar with your role and the other people with theirs. Did it.
2: I think when you when you have a limited uh-huh. amount of time, you go into it with a you know having done your homework and. Uh-huh. Certainly, um, the leads were pretty much off book. Sean Hayes was pretty much off book when he, when he. Um, well, Sean went, Hayes plays Mr. Applegate, yes, the devil, and, the and Jane Krakowski. We should mention plays, plays Lola, Lola, of course. Yeah. And they, are, um, and I know Jane was working um, ahead of time with Mary McLeod, who was um, doing all the Fosse choreography. They were working ahead of time. Um, my part is not huge, but um, I, I actually didn't know my lines going in. Um, and uh, I was somewhat familiar with the songs because I didn't want to listen to the recording and get any, get any preconceived ideas, and I didn't watch the movie, which I'm going to watch once we close because I really <laughs> want to see it. But I didn't want to get any pre. I did meet Shannon Bolin, who's now 91 years old, who originated the role of Meg. And she came to the opening, and she's just the dearest, dearest woman and beautiful and she i was so overwhelmed she sent me a present backstage and she gave me a pair of her pearls they're real pearls and they must be hers and she said these are old like me but wear wear them with love oh, <laughs> you know? she just i really was yeah. so touched by that and they're think. they're beautiful and they're very meg you know meg who has did her okay. you
0: did you get to talk to her at all about oh, yeah. the original we production
2: a, we talked for a while she was really cute she said um, you were really funny. I don't think I was that funny.
1: <laughs>
2: it's really cute. She was She was overwhelmed. My parents actually sat right near her in the audience, and they said that she was crying. Oh. But she's a lovely, lovely person.
1: And how, how about Richard Adler? Was he involved at all?
2: Yeah, he showed up at one of the rehearsals, and he was there again at the theater last night. He, he seems to really like our production, so I'm happy about that.
0: You commented about not wanting to have preconceived notions, but how familiar... Were you with Damn Yankees before going into this? Had you seen it much or
2: Ish, I saw I saw the revival with um BB Newworth and Victor Garber, but I really wasn't that. I knew whatever Lola wants Lola gets and I knew heart and I but I didn't remember I didn't I wasn't that familiar with it. And it's a it's such a crowd pleaser. I mean the audiences are just they're so happy at the end. Standing up and beaming and singing along because we sing heart in the curtain call. They're just so happy at the end. It's great.
0: <laughs> well, it's one of those shows <laughs> where even if people don't know the show, they probably know a few of the songs. Yeah. Well, they certainly know heart. Yeah. So, and sometimes don't realize where they know it from. Exactly. So fascinating. Exactly. So often when we talk to people on this program, we start talking about their long journey to New York and how their <laughs> careers got started. You didn't have quite as long a trip as most. Oh, because I'm, I'm born and raised. <laughs> you know, I
2: always think of what Elaine Stritch said. She says, it's not the work, it's the stairs. You know, she's talking about... <laughs> that's what the prostitute said. It's not... Anyway, uh, I digress. <laughs> but um, I... Uh, yeah, I... Well, I'm born... I was born in Brooklyn, and we lived there till I was 15. And then... We moved to Staten Island, and then when I graduated college, which was in 76, uh, 78, I moved into Manhattan. So I'm a real native.
0: So were you growing up seeing Broadway shows from the beginning?
2: No. Well, actually, not all the time, but the first Broadway show I ever saw was Fiddler on the Roof.
0: Interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that later on. (laughs) Oh,
2: yeah. I saw Fiddler. I was 12. Hmm. We Hmm. all went... But I didn't start seriously going until I got into college.
1: Did you go to college intending to study theater or did it just yeah, I did. Uh-huh.
2: I did. I I I I little bit in high school on Staten a and I saw a production at Wagner a which is it's a local private school on Staten Island. And I saw a production of The Roar of the Grease Paint, of I was transported, you know. I bit mm-hmm. I a to bit to and, and I'm glad I did because... Um, It's wonderful going to school and being so close to Manhattan because you really can keep tabs on what's going on and what's expected of you. You're not just getting an academic education, you're getting a a little bit of a professional education as well, being so close and staying that connected.
0: Did you have teachers who were working professionally when you were in
2: school? I had one teacher who was my mentor and he passed away in 96, but he, he taught me the most important stuff I ever learned. His name was Milton Lyon and milton um taught me he was a guest director at our college he came from the mccarter and he guest directed a production of jacques brel is alive and well and with 20 students
0: you have to do that in college productions. Yes, you, you can't do, do four characters <laughs> everybody shows. has to get
2: a chance and he was the first person to teach me that a song is a monologue and you have to act a song and that's invaluable cuz some people don't learn that until they get get out of school if they're not studying with the In the right program. And then Milton was casting a production of Pins and Needles at the old roundabout on 23rd Street in 1979. And I didn't have an agent or anything like that. And I called him up and I remember saying, Can I try out for your show? Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I did. And he cast me and I got my first agent, Peter Strain, who is still my agent. And that was all that all happened in 1978. So Milton is. He was responsible for getting me started and teaching me and my what, craft.
1: And was that your first paycheck in the theater? Or did you have to go out of town and work your way back to New York? you just you just started in it, New York? It was
2: the first nice, you know, relatively speaking. It was a, it was a nice sized paycheck. I I was making <laughs> when I was doing non equity summer stock. I was making a whopping thirty five dollars a week. And, with, you know, free peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but <laughs> I was having the time of my life. But yeah, I could think that was my first professional job in New York where I got paid pins and needles.
0: Tell people about that show because, of course, it's a revival of a show, but not a show that's well known.
2: It's it's about the Garment Workers Union, and I wish I could be more specific, but it's just a series of sketches, and I and I... I don't remember. I don't remember it enough.
1: As I recall, it was written by Harold, Harold Rome, for, Rome for the Union. Yeah, it was a Union production in nineteen thirty-seven. Yes, yeah, so as you recall, ladies, I should have asked you. You remember John, to more tell us than us about I do. Show.
2: But I remember we sang in the curtain call. Look for the Union label. Remember that. <laughs> I, I remember <laughs> that song? It's
0: a little different than coming out and singing hard at the yeah, end of yeah, Damn yeah. Yankees, isn't yeah. it? Now. I had a little trouble in looking at the chronology. So you have to tell us which came first in terms of Broadway. Okay. Was it Greece or yeah. was it Sarava?
2: Oh my god, it was Greece because I did somebody's vacation in Greece. You know, they had so many companies that they would rotate people in and out when somebody was on vacation. So I went in and I did my, and I understudied for a week and I went on for a lot of roles cuz people were always out in that show. But I went on for Rizzo and that's, and I made my debut at the Royale, now called the uh, Bernie Jacobs,
0: mm-hmm.
2: at the Royale. That was my Broadway debut, but I was just there for a week. And then Sarovac came after that.
0: Now you have to tell us about Saravah because it's. <laughs> I'm it's, working with
2: PJ Benjamin.
0: Well, who was in that with you? But yeah. Saravah again, reading an interview, you suggested that at one point you actually <laughs> were taking it off of your resume, even I though I it was took one it of off. your first Broadway <laughs> gig.
2: I took it off. You know, Saravah is it, for you know pe- people who remember it. It was the, it was the big joke of the industry. But why?
0: It was, we should say, for people who don't know, it was a musical <laughs> version of the Brazilian well, film Dona Flor and Her Two Husbands. Which is a
2: fantastic film. But the, the show previewed... It never opened. It previewed for six months. We never opened. Back in those days, you didn't have to open. We previewed for six months. They never opened it. And Mitch <laughs> Lee, who wrote, as you know, Man of La Mancha, wrote the music, and he actually... This is what I remember. He actually stood on stage and told us that we were his tax shelter for his Man of La
0: Mancha tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's inspirational to so the cast. A nice
2: thing to hear. But I didn't care. It was a big deal for me, you know. It was a big deal for me. But it was a joke because it wasn't a very good show. Although by the end, the New Jersey loved us. But but. You know, it was a real Bridge and Tunnel show. But we had a it commercial. It a great commercial, yeah. That's the thing everybody remembers. They remember the commercial because it was a disco version of Sarava, and they played it like on a loop practically mm. 24 hours a day. And <laughs> and the whole idea of Sarava, you know, at the end of, it's like, it, it's an exclamation point. Actually, when I got married, <laughs> I told my, my best man was, um, our best man was Lonnie Price, who was a dear friend, actually fixed up me and my husband. But Lonnie said to everybody that Randy said, if you don't want to say um, Mazel Tov, you can say Saravah after Tim <laughs> breaks the glass. <laughs> so people, people yelled out Saravah after Tim broke the glass. And my husband is a, a musical director and a musician. And um, years ago when he was subbing, when he was subbing... Um, Secret Garden, he said when he got to the end of the score, it said (laughs) Saravah. So that's what I mean by it being a joke. And for a while, you know, when I was first starting, it was a great conversation piece. But, you know, gratefully, I got enough credits that I can <laughs> take it
0: off, <laughs> but it's I'm so curious, funny. In a six-month preview period, was it actually being worked on for six months, no, or they just were No, like, no, we were just running. It wasn't we were just running rewrites for six months. No,
2: I don't think we did any. I, I mean, again, it was so long ago, but <laughs> so funny. I think one day I walked into the Mark Callender stage door, and there was a big fruit basket or food basket from Joe Allen's. And somebody said, well, I guess we've opened because Joe Allen <laughs> sent us something. They used to send apples to everybody. Hmm. Remember the apples? Joe Allen used to send big baskets
1: huh. of
0: apples. But know. you must have run through the statute of limitations that after six months you're getting your apples no matter what. Exactly. <laughs> so funny.
1: Well, quite the uh, the other extreme from Sarah Vaughan was Les miserable, which came along in 1987. <sighs>
2: yes, and I have a great story for you about that.
1: And you were the original Fantine. What's, what's the great story?
2: The great story is... Sarva, which was my official Broadway debut, right. was at the the Broadway theater. We moved from the Mark Callinger to the Broadway. And I remember, I, just, I was just telling PJ, PJ Benjamin, this story because I played his sister-in-law and now I play his wife in Damn Yankees. But I remember it being the last week and I was out on the fire escape and I was looking at the intersection of Broadway and 52nd Street and I thought to myself, when will I ever be here again? Cut to 19... 19- Eighty-eight, eighty-six, eighty-seven, 86, 87. Yeah. And that's where Le Mis was. Isn't that mm-hmm. unbelievable?
0: Now, Les Mis, of course, was transferring. It had, Well, not transferring, but it had been done in England. It's been yes. recast. Questions about, you know, certainly Colm Wilkinson came over. How did you land the role of Fontaine? since certainly you had an illustrious predecessor in, in Mr. Well, th-
2: thankfully, Patty decided to turn Broadway down, because she had first refusal on the Broadway company, and she turned it down, and then um, I had auditioned, and I waited a month until she decided, and then they called and told me that I got it. So
0: it was you say waited a month, so literally you had the sense that it would be yours if no. she didn't do it? Oh,
2: Well, they told me that I was their first choice, but that they were waiting for Patty to make a decision. So between my final callback and the day that they called, it was about a month, wow. and I was doing Fiddler on the Roof. Out of town at Pittsburgh Civic Light Opera, in the middle of an orchestra rehearsal, and Hmm. and they called.
1: Hmm. You seem to have this connection to fiddler on the roof. Your first Broadway show, and we'll get to here. Doesn't everybody have a fiddler on the roof? (laughs) Everybody
2: has a fiddler on the roof connection. It's just iconic for people that show.
1: That must have been a very nervous (laughs) month waiting uh, for the phone to ring. Basically.
2: Yeah, I mean, I tried to mm, pretend that I didn't care, but. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Had 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 the rest of the show been pretty well cast at that point?
2: Um I, I don't remember. I don't I really don't remember.
1: But but you were there from day one of rehearsal and yeah. all that. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah. And yeah.
0: what was the process? I mean it's hard to go back, obviously we're going back, you know, twenty one years now. But with a show that had been a huge success in England, how much when you went into rehearsal for it here, was it being reworked, or was it about hitting the marks that they'd hit over there? Because it's such a big mm-hmm. machine. I don't mean that in a bad way, but no. the physical production is, mm-hmm. is so substantial.
2: Well, the nice thing that Trevor Nunn and John Caird said to us, one of, the ni- one of the many nice things they said to us on the first day of rehearsal was, this isn't going to be a replica of the London company. We're going to start at the beginning, and we actually made some changes that they later put in in London. When we were in D.C., the Paris beggar scene, we completely reworked it, and they went back and put it in in, in uh, London. It was great. It was. I mean, I have very fond memories of that rehearsal period. I felt like I was doing Nicholas Nickleby because we we uh, we were we didn't touch the script for two weeks. We did improv for two weeks.
1: Hmm.
2: It was like being in college again and playing theater games and um they They were very big on getting us to sometimes make complete asses of ourselves with some of these theater games so that we would really trust one another and we did
1: well what what sort of improv was it related to the show yeah it?
2: some of it was, and some of it were just just be silly and make an ass of yourself and um some were once we got um into the, the book work we would do was the famous prostitution improvisations <laughs> where that became the prostitution scene Scene that became Lovely Ladies where um, the boys were taken in one room by Trevor Nunn the girls were taken in the other room by John Caird and I don't know what the boys were doing in there but I can tell you what we were doing and um, John Caird had each one of us as our prostitute character walk across the room as if we were trying to pick up a man. So he was the man that we were trying to pick up. But remembering that it was the time that it was and we were physically disabled and there were all sorts of illnesses going on and keeping that in mind, still trying to sell our bodies. So we did that. Your eyes are bulging. We did that. It was really fascinating. Some of us... We were coughing, and some of us had limps, and some of us were missing a limb, and we really embraced it. So we did that for John, and then we all went into the big rehearsal room and did it for the boys. And the guys had to pick the one that they liked, you know? So mm. we improv it, and it grew into the scene. That's the kind of stuff that we did. It was really great really fulfilling rewarding stuff it was great
1: huh. it was, sounds kind of different than the usual rehearsal period for a show where I would think you would get to the book right away
2: yeah we, we didn't touch it we didn't touch it for a while hmm. he really wanted to they really wanted to create an ensemble a bond and they, they did
1: so when you did get to the book then how did Fantine develop for you
2: uh, this I'm, It's always hard for me to talk about my process. Uh-huh. I'm not one of these actors who can talk about it. Because I just tend to um, live it uh-huh. when it's happening. And I certainly um, got great input from um, Trevor and John. They're wonderful directors. So it we had a long rehearsal process. And it grew and continued to grow. And, you know, I'm... I'm I am I know I'm really inarticulate when it comes to talking about process, but it's hard for me to talk about, actually.
0: <laughs> Les Mis is one of those albums that has been played and played and played by kids and grown-ups around the world over and over, but certainly the American cast recording, and... Um, Sung along to but before we got on the air, you were telling us <laughs> you're not keen on hearing the recording of yourself. No. Can you can you tell us why?
2: Well, I was tired. You know, you you open a show and, and and they immediately put you in the recording studio. We took David Geffen recorded us, we took two weeks to record that. And thank God they have this little thing called punching in. So if you you crack, you just have to come in and they and you sing it straight and they just punch it in for you. And I think for all those Lame Is Recording fans out there, every one of those C Naturals <laughs> is punched in <laughs> because I was tired. I was terrified. It was my first for posterity cast recording, and you're in the little booth and the red light comes on, and it was my first one. I was really scared. So, um, uh,. I did it, and parts of it were a little rough, and then they called me in the following week to punch in the stuff. But I listen to myself now, and I know what I was doing was my performance. But I hear myself sometimes, and I cringe because it sounds a little harsh. It sounds like I'm straining a little bit. But friends of mine who were in the show with me said, no, Randy, you did. that was your performance. That was your performance. That's what you were doing. Um, see, I, I'm older and wiser, and uh, hopefully the work as you get older gets a little bit more refined, you know? So when I listen to it, I think, oh, my God, I would never sing that <laughs> that way. But that was my performance in 1987.
1: So. And, of course, that's what a cast album is supposed to be, yeah. the performance, not a recording studio yeah. version, but a performance version.
2: Hopefully, Yeah. They told us that they called the show Les Mis. Trevor and John told us they called the show Les Mis because nobody could pronounce
0: it.
1: <laughs> and what, what is the correct pronunciation?
2: Les Miserables. Les Rob. <laughs>
0: From the extraordinary success of Les Mis, your next musical was one that played out of town... But did not come in Namely 80 days At the La Jolla Playhouse Oh my god You
2: boys have done Your research Well mm. it's a show I've
0: always been Very curious about With a score By Ray Davies yeah, Of the Kings Can you score. talk a little
2: About it I think they should Bring that back I do. It had a fantastic score, a rock score, mm-hmm. and um, the book was just very unfocused. They just, you know, around the world in eighty days. They really just tried to cover a little bit too much. And
0: were they trying to put it all, the whole journey, on stage, big scenically, and yeah, all of that and, stuff? Yeah, And it was a,
2: it was a, it was, it just needed focusing. But the score was great. And, and I, who did I play? Nelly, Nelly, the the reporter, Nelly, Nelly.
0: Was it Nellie Bly, the, the Yeah, the Nellie Bly. Not having seen the show. Yes, so. yeah, yeah. But but one people should should take another look at.
2: I wish they would, hmm. Des McAnoff, if you're listening.
0: <laughs> and it was, <laughs> it was interesting because to... <laughs> it was a rock show out at La Jolla, and it was a few years later that Des turned to Tommy and, yeah. of course, had the huge success. Yeah, yeah. Um, so well, The Who rocker. versus the Kinks, I'm sure uh, – those must have been some interesting conversations between those guys over which made it and which didn't.
2: <laughs> Probably, yeah.
1: Let's move on to your next Broadway credit, which was City of Angels, for which you did win the Tony mm-hmm. Award. And that was a, a basic a real life and a film noir at the same time, interwoven stories of, of the fiction writer Stein and the right. the uh, star of his, his books, Stone. Yes. And you played the dual secretary roles of Uli and Donna.
2: Yes. Miss Uli, who Larry Gelbart told me the name is based on a housekeeper that he had in Hawaii. Really? <laughs> Her name was Uli. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, how did you become Uli? How did you become Donna? How did you get the role?
2: I auditioned. I auditioned.
1: Even, even after you had to go in an audition for this? Mm-hmm. Mm.
2: Oh, yeah. I mean, the the parts, the roles are very different uh-huh. from different parts. But, yeah, I mean... It's nice when you don't have to audition, but I had, um, and that happens, that happens, but um, but I got called into audition for this, and I met Michael Blakemore, the director, who I just adore, and um, I had one audition, had a call back, got home, and they called, my agent called me at home, they, so they made their mind up pretty quickly, so I was very happy about that. I didn't have to wait a month on that one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Part of what it was so memorable about your performance in the show and the show overall was you had one phenomenal Song yeah. was that song there the day you went to the first rehearsal? Well,
2: here's the thing about that song. About a month before I got it, I ran into David Zippel, who I think you he you was got on, on it your show. A, yes, a I gosh. ran into David in front of Lincoln Center right about a month before we were starting, and he said to me, and I just wrote you a showstopper." <laughs> And I said, "Ooh, no pressure." <laughs> but uh, it was written a month before we started rehearsals. And when it was first written, it didn't. It actually didn't have a verse. It launched right into the chorus. Um, if you need a gal to go without Sally, it didn't. It didn't have the verse. I'm one of a long line of good girls. We were in um, tech rehearsal, and Cy si was sort of noodling at the piano. Um, and Cy uh, si and David called me over and said. Listen to this. Listen to this. And on a little piece of paper, there was a little lyric that David wrote down. And Cy was playing the verse for me. And they just kind of thought of it in the middle of tech rehearsal. They thought, there's something missing. There's something missing from this song. And Cy said, it's the verse. We needed a verse. We needed a verse. So, and that's how the verse got born, in the middle of tech. So, it was, the song finally came together pretty Late on.
1: And did David Zippel write the lyric? Then shy just kind of doodled on the piano to come up with the melody, or
2: I don't know how. Yeah. I don't know how they work. I just know I was on the stage. They called me down and they said, "Take a look at this." So uh-huh. I don't know uh-huh. <laughs> how that all happened and and what the time frame was either. But
0: it's great. <laughs> we keep talking about musicals, but you are not exclusively a musical performer. Um, your next. Uh, Play on Broadway after City of Angels, laughter on the twenty third <gasps> floor. Yeah, that was creating great. a role in a Neil Simon show, mm-hmm. um, and as people who know the show know that it's based on Neil Simon's own experiences writing for your show of shows. Mm-hmm. And it's a story, interestingly enough, that's been adapted by many different people writing about it. My right. favorite year is right. much the same story. Uh even the old Dick Van Dyke show. You right. you were in sort of the Rosemary mm-hmm. role. Mm-hmm. And there was one other woman in the show, but essentially you were the girl I
2: was the, the, in
0: the mm-hmm. room with all of these guys. And mm-hmm. these guys were Nathan Lane and Lou Stadlin and... Mark uh, Lynn
2: Baker, J.K. Simmons, funniest <laughs> men in New York. <laughs> so how
0: much was the experience of being in that cast, echoing the experience of what your character was going through?
2: Well, it's it's interesting because um, the role of Carol is based on Lucille Callan, who was the only woman in the room back in your show of shows. And a friend of mine... Um, Knew her, or knew somebody who knew her, and 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 um, gave me her phone number. And I called her up. I think she's passed away. Um, she was a little, really petite, adorable woman. And um, of course, the the main question for me was, what did it feel like to be the only woman in the room? Like you're asking me. And she said, I never forgot that I was a woman, and I used it and she said it was really funny she said see I'm very petite so I kind of used my cuteness and my perkiness and she said to me you sound tall <laughs> 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 <Torn>. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to use whatever you've got but ne- I never forgot that I was a woman and that was the best insight I could have gotten into that character that I didn't try to be one of the boys I just was Carol in you know, a woman in a man's world but um that was the most fun time I've ever had in the theater laughing 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 laughing
0: on stage backstage all
2: the time I mean they're the the funniest guys in New York those guys and I just was laughing all the time and I loved them and I still keep up with a lot of them
1: during performance. guys during performance. How much did they stay on book, on script, and how much was ad libbed or maybe oh, added? No ad libs. No, no. They really stuck to it. Well, huh? Look,
2: when you've got a Neil Simon script, mm-hmm. you don't need to ad lib. You know, it's, it's it's right there on the page. But you know, we had our fun. We had our fun. If anybody ever went went up, you know, that was like a field day. If anybody <laughs> ever went up, <laughs> but
0: it was great fun. So what was going on backstage at that show?
2: <laughs> um. E- you know what goes on backstage at, you know lots of talking and hanging out and it was great we We premiered at, at uh, Duke University in North Carolina, and I just couldn't believe where I was at. you know, I was sitting on the sofa with neil simon i I just thought,, how the hell did I get here? you know he's Neil Simon for crying out loud.
0: <laughs> well, let me ask you, you know you said you had the tips from from your real life uh model but but Neil Simon give you any comedy tips? Um, I don't
2: know if I were, um, the thing about, the thing about Neil is that he likes to get inspired. So he shows up, he's at rehearsal and he watches and goes home and writes on you. Hmm. Like, I remember there was, um, and his, his comedy is... The rhythms are so perfect that all you have to do is say the lines, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just... I remember we were doing one scene... Oh, this is so vague. But um uh I was pregnant. I was really, really pregnant. And I walked into the scene, and I guess I felt like I was going to have the baby right then and there. And I don't remember what I did, but the next day I came in and there was a speech. Because whatever... Neil saw. He went home and he wrote. Hmm.
1: Hmm. So then, how do you feel that Neil Simon has written something specifically based on something you have done? Oh, I mean, had Neil Simon write for you, beyond <laughs> honored and
2: flattered, and um, I got to work with him again. We did something called Hotel Suite at the Roundabout years later, and I love doing Neil Simon.
0: Hmm. Well, as we're talking about great comedy. Another play on Broadway. You got to play Carol Burnett's daughter.
2: Yeah, how lucky T- am I? Tell and us about Philip working Bosco's and daughter. Phil
0: Bosco's daughter. But tell us, tell us about Moon Over Buffalo and and well, that. Which, know, of course, interestingly, some of us can still get glimpses of because of the documentary. One right. of the rare opportunities. Right, right. But but tell us a little about it.
2: Um, I sort of knew Carol Um, we had had some mutual friends and um, we had socialized before Um, and when I found out I was playing her daughter I just I was thrilled obviously but you know I was like a little sponge because when you watch Carol Burnett do comedy you just kind of sit and take it all in and it was so much it was so exciting to watch how a little Carol Burnett bit gets born (laughs) And that happened a couple of times.
1: Well, how, how, one,
2: well, there was one. We, we were actually all we were all talking about it. Um, she has to she has to have a phone conversation in the last scene in the play. This is a visual, so I don't know if anybody's going to get it. But she used to just she used to talk into the phone, say yes, uh huh, uh huh, um, okay, thank you, and then she would hang up the phone. But um, little by little, night by night, she'd get she'd be talking into the phone and getting lower and lower and closer to the receiver as she was.
1: And as, as, as Randy as is saying that she is lowering and her And I'm lowering, own lowering myself. Yeah.
2: And you just saw this little... It's not funny, obviously, to talk about. You have to see it. But we, <laughs> we all said that, and a Carol Burnett bit is born. You know, we all we all <laughs> witnesses. And, and she is the kindest person, the classiest woman you, you ever want to meet. And the, her fans love her for a reason, because she, she's so, so gener- generous with them. When We would walk out the stage door... Sometimes and she, you know, she'd have big sunglasses on. But if anybody came up to her, she would always take her glasses off and make eye contact with them. And she and her fans love her because she gives to them. So that was a real lesson. And and I, I can't say enough about her. She's a wonderful woman.
1: Let's go back to musicals again because your next Broadway <laughs> role was in uh, High Society, which most audiences knew from. The movie in right. the mid-50s, a Cole Porter movie, High Society, and the role you played was Liz Embry, the one that uh, Celeste Holm originated in the film. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and being in a, in a Cole Porter musical, which was a little bit different than Les Mis in terms of the music and the atmosphere and all that.
2: Yeah, well, I actually love that whole time period, and for some, you know, it's... Um 30, 30, what, what year is it? Late 30s?
1: It's the original
0: period. Well, late the film was actually set in a later period. The film was set when it was made in, in the, the 50s. Country. The original story um, was from the 30s. So I don't, I I don't recall where the play I think we were like late, 30, late
2: 30s, yeah. 40s, which is, a, a, I don't know, a time period that I have just an affinity for. I don't know. Maybe I was a big band singer or something. But I felt that way when I was doing City of Angels as well. So I love being in that time period. And I had a... Um, gorgeous song called He's a Right Guy that Paul Gimignani turned into a ballad. I think Merman sang it. I don't know where she sang it, but there's a recording of her singing it, and she sort of belted it out. And we just gave it a different twist to fit the moment with the late Daniel McDonald who I sang that song to. Um um, it, um, so I I um I was very um, happy to sing a, a Cole Porter ballad that no one was that familiar with, and to be mm-hmm. able to introduce it, you know, to audiences. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Well, you have not uh, watched the movie of Damn Yankees. Had you seen the movie of High Society?
2: Yes, well, and I thought it was a terrible movie.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> I watched the Philadelphia Story, which mm-hmm. was much more informative and just which brilliant. Was what High Society was based yeah. on. Yeah, but the actual movie of High Society, I didn't think it was so great. I didn't think it was very good.
1: Mm. Yeah. Maybe, in the mid fifties, it was it was good. <laughs> yeah, by by those standards.
0: High Society was a show that, late in its pre, relatively late in its process, changed directors, directors yeah. and and choreographers. Yes, what is what is it like to be in a show and suddenly have that kind of change in leadership?
2: Honestly, we were grateful because the show wasn't working, and so well we were. Um, grateful that they brought in people doctors to fix it up you know mm. uh, in that in that particular circumstance it w- it was it's always I shouldn't say it was you know it's always a mixed bag because you get close to people and then they have to leave but professionally speaking i i believe that they made the right decision but personally it's rough mm. you know of course it's rough
0: and how significant were the changes once,
2: once the choreography the was completely in? changed wow. by Wayne Salento. um and the book there was a lot of editing and yeah. You know.
1: hmm. Did they change the basic storyline or just tighten it or, or they what? tightened did they it,
2: it tighten. needed some tightening and,
1: and how know. about how about your character? Any just surgery on her? No, I don't
2: remember having any surgery on that one. <laughs>
0: <laughs> For the next major musical, you started in a small theater at the Manhattan Theater Club mm. with a show called A Class Act in a tiny space. Um Was there any expectation of what was going to happen with that show?
2: No, I mean, we just did our little show, you know. But if you're lucky enough, you get a producer who falls in love with your show, and that was Marty Bell. And he was so passionate about us, and he brought us to Broadway. That is one of those shows that I get a lot of, because it's about, you know, BMI workshop and creating a musical and writing a musical. I get so many kids college students and who love that show who came to see it you know a dozen times or more and they're such fans of it and, I, and they still come up to me they still come up to me in the subway and on the street and say we just love that show so much um, and for me it was a treat because Lonnie Price is one of my dearest friends and we got to work together so closely and and um, it, it's a it's um it's a beautiful part with a gorgeous ballad that uh, that came with it, which was, I think, the reason that I decided to take it. Because Marty Bell had called and said, we're doing a little reading of this. Let me just send you this song called The Next Best Thing to Love. And they sent me a recording of Ed Kleban singing Next Best Thing to Love. And I fell in love with the song. Mm-hmm. Fell in love with it. And OK, I'll do it. <laughs> and we
1: should say that it was the, the whole show was the music of Ed Kleban. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was based on him. He had passed away some years earlier. Yeah,
2: it was based on his life. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you've mentioned several times your friendship with Lonnie Price. Lonnie was directing the show, he had mm-hmm. been involved in the development of the show, mm-hmm. and late in the game went into the show as well as a performer.
2: Yeah. I mean, it, it, he, I should say he he went into it. He didn't want to, but they... they but the director they,
0: couldn't find anyone else. Well, it wasn't so much <laughs> that. They
2: really wanted him to play it. Yeah. The producers um, really wanted him to play it. So he wore many hats.
0: What's it like having your director on stage weird, acting with you? Weird. <laughs> also, you're, you're, weird. A, you're a close friend. Oh, right. <laughs> my close
2: friend. It could get weird sometimes. And even Lonnie would say that sometimes he was in the scene, and he was and sort of taking a note in the back of his head. So it's not something that I would like to do again. I, you know, I, I need I need the director to be out there and objective. But he made it work, and we made it work. Yeah. Hmm.
0: You got the opportunity to do a new Paula Vogel play, Mm. A Long Christmas Ride Home. Mm. Can you talk? It's a really interesting piece in terms of of family reverie involving, you know, some tough family stories over a couple of periods, acting with puppeteers at the same time. Yeah. Um, What did that piece say to you?
2: Um. What did it say to me? Um, I was... Um, that was one of those pieces where we didn't know what we were going to... We didn't really know how to tell the story. Because I oh. I was playing um, a narrator. That Mark Blum and I were narrators, narrating this story. And then sometimes we'd have to become the characters within the story. And I remember saying to Mark Brokaw, um, How do we do this? Am I the narrator now with my voice? Am I the character with the narrator's narrator's voice? And Margo said, you know what? I don't know. Let's just see what happens organically. And um, it was very exciting to see, to just let it evolve um, naturally And sometimes I would be the narrator as the objective narrator. And sometimes I would be living and speaking through the characters that I was narrating about. And then the whole storytelling using puppets. I I remember um, some of the critics that was back when I read reviews. I don't read them anymore. I'm very proud to say. (laughs) But they commented on it. It wasn't necessarily the story that was so um, innovative because it was a story of a dysfunctional family, and that's not old news. So, I mean, that's not new news, rather. But it was the storytelling with these um, puppets and uh, marionettes that actors had to work and act through as they were working the puppets. And I can't recall the brilliant man who, I can't remember his name, but he's very famous. And it was I, Basil Twist. Thank you, Basil yeah. Twist, who's a genius, yeah. um, just a genius. And you start working with these puppets, and they take on a life of their own, and you just relate to them like, I related to them like they were my children. So it was fascinating to work on that. And also, it was so well-received that I remember there was a blizzard And there were people waiting in line outside in the snow to get in during the blizzard because the response, the critical response, was so great. But um, I would love to do that again, Hmm. actually, and meeting Paula Vogel.
1: Hmm. Well, you mentioned earlier that the first Broadway show you ever saw sitting in the audience at 12 years of age or whatever was Fiddler on the Roof, and then uh, four years ago you got a chance to be on the stage starring in the revival in 2004 of uh, of Fiddler. Mm -hmm. How did that feel, then, being up on stage? Did you, you, ever in your life, think you would ever be performing Fiddler, even when you were 12 years old?
2: Well, what's funny is, uh, so I saw it when I was 12 years old, and then when I was 30, I played Ah, uh and and then... Sometime later, I played Golda, so maybe in a couple of years, I'll play, you know, Frumacera (laughs) or something. Why don't
1: you play Yenta first before you play the dead (laughs) character?
0: (laughs)
2: Thank you. (laughs) Um, Fiddler was special to me because it was the first Broadway show I ever saw. I went to see it with my grandfather, who grew up in a shtetl, and he walked out of that theater in tears. So doing that show, I... There were a lot of ghosts, a lot of a lot of um, from my great mm-hmm. grandparents and grandparents for me. So it was very moving for me personally because of my heritage. I'm an Eastern, you know, I come from Eastern European Jews. So, um, and we that was another one where we completely reinvented it. You know, there are people there were people who saw the original production who had a really hard time with it because they just couldn't leave the ghosts at the door. They had to bring them in and then there were other people seeing fiddler for the first time who were just blown away by it. I had a spectacular time. It was one of those special, I'm going to be corny here, but one of those special magical musical theater experiences and I didn't and to have one so late again, you know, I guess the first one really had to be lame is because it was so new, but I didn't expect to have one like that. And it's because of the company and David Laveau, and especially for me was working with Alfred Molina, who just spoiled me as far as leading men are concerned.
1: How, how, how do you mean <laughs> His that? He's
2: acting. He's just an incredible actor. We had a great chemistry. He's also a good friend. And um, he he was just, he is just divine. So it was a fantastic experience. Very, very moving. I mean, you know that show, it really gets you in the Kishkas, you know, and and our one of our previews or early on when the when the when the when the stage went dark at the very end, someone from the back of the house yelled out, Thank you.
0: (laughs) I have to that kind of stuff, you know? You spoke about your heritage and there were some really preposterous things said at the time of that production about it being deracinated de-Jew mm. things like that mm-hmm. and I'm wondering how aware you and the rest of the company were of that mm-hmm. and and your response to to those those claims
2: well I was angered by those claims because it's slightly it's slightly anti, anti-Semitic I think to say that unless you talk like this and you kind of have a hump on your back you don't or you know you're not Jewish mm-hmm. um and that's a weird thing to say and if you look if you look in the books that um the of the of shtetl life from that time there are all different kinds of faces and you don't have to have a big nose and big ears to be a jew and 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 uh, that i i was very offended by some of those comments and um um, well, I lost my train of thought, but yes, to answer your question, we were all very aware of those comments because they kept popping up over and over again, and they said that there weren't enough Jewish people in the company, and and uh, uh, Jerry Bach said there's just as many Jewish people in this company as there were in the original company. Um, I don't know people people have preconceived ideas about what Jewish people sound and and talk like, so I never really. I never really understood it. I just think it's it's feather on the roof is so iconic in people's minds and it's actually a testament to the peace when people get offended because it's like their feet they get very proprietary, it's my fiddler, it's, you know. Um we we just did something we we just came at it from another
0: well, it is that challenge of also iconic musicals. People get the original image in their mind, yeah, they and they up. want it to be the same. And which brings us full circle to Damn Yankees. Right, it, right. it may not have the same <laughs> passion that that um, people feel for Fiddler because Fiddler spoke to people's cultural experiences. But as you spoke, you you didn't go you didn't go into Damn Yankees with a lot of preconceived notions. No,
2: but the thing—the thing that we're doing with Damn Yankees is we're doing it in 1955. We're not. We're, it's, there's no new take on it, and that was something that our director talked about the first week, because that's what they do at encores—they kind of take the old ones and they shine them up a little bit—and that's what we're doing with that. But I think the 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 people who I've met who are familiar with Damn Yankees are um, very surprised by how. Involved they are in the love story between Meg and Young Joe, and um, so we, we really pay special attention to the emotional component component of the show. I mean, it's a great it's a great story and uh, um, Faustian story, but it's also a love a love story. You
1: know? Well, damn Yankees is ending its run this weekend. Yeah. What's next for you?
2: Well, I'm actually going to the Kennedy Center. Um, They are reopening the Eisenhower Theater, and we're doing a concert called Broadway, the Third Generation, which is directed by my friend Lonnie Price. Um, So that'll be the first weekend in October. Great. They're taking three shows and doing 45-minute versions of Girl Crazy, Bye Bye Birdie, and Sideshow.
1: Sounds like fun. I think it will be. Randy, thanks for being with us today. Oh, so lovely to be here. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks,
0: Randy. For the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding our listeners that these programs and all of the educational and media work of the American Theater Wing is available online, on demand, for free, from our website, www.americantheaterwing.org.
1: And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten for Downstage Center. That is a wrap, and thank you.
0: The American Theatre Wing encourages all of our podcast fans to share our programs with friends and colleagues, but we remind you that any commercial distribution, commercial use of our programs, or program modification is prohibited without our express permission. We appreciate your cooperation and invite you to contact us with any questions. Thanks for listening.